For those of you who are still on board, man, we are reading some amazing stuff right now. Like we're reading Isaiah, and so much, Isaiah was a prophet that God used, and so much of what he said came through in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's cool to watch. Reading Song of Solomon, uh, it's, it's a book about great sex. Who wouldn't like that? I mean, that's, that's it's okay. It's okay. Y'all are like, is it? Is it? Did you say that about the Bible? Ab, read it yourself. Trust me. So you got that, and then, and then. There's cool stuff, in them, and there's some really cool stuff we're reading in the New Testament right now. Like in the New Testament, we're reading some letters from Paul to churches that Paul planted. See, just a little reminder for you guys. In the Old Testament, before Christ, the spirit and the power of God was found in a place. And that place was, anybody remember? The temple, tabernacle. Yes, tabernacle. We're tabernacling. Uh, the Spirit of God was found in the tabernacle. <laughs> that's my favorite word. And, um, and so that's where the power and the presence of God was. Then Christ comes, and the power and the presence of God has moved from a place to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. He's now the power and the presence of God for the world. Then Christ dies on the cross. He resurrects to heaven. He ascends, he's back to life, and the Holy Spirit descends, not around us, but into us. And now the power and the presence of God has gone from a place to a person to a people, right? And so the power and the presence of God was now in a people. And so this guy named Paul, who was a killer of Christians, a persecutor of Christians, he, he becomes infested full of the power and the presence of God because he meets Christ and he's blinded on this road. It's a really cool story. And so he begins to go around and spread the power and the presence of God to other people. Not just to Jewish people, which it had been. This is a pretty much a Jewish story. And then Paul goes along and he begins to, to bring in Gentiles or people like you and I, unless you're a Jew. He begins to bring in people like you and I into the story. And so Paul finds these little pockets of believers that would later become to known as churches. And he, and he plants them and he sort of organizes them. And there's one in Corinth. And there's one in a place called Ephesus. And there's one in a place called Galatia. And Paul is just walking around and planning these churches and, 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 and empowering these groups of people. And then he goes back and writes them letters. And he writes them letters because he wants to encourage them or maybe correct them. Because believe it or not, sometimes young churches can get a little squirrely. Come on. So Paul writes these folks letters and says, listen, I want you to keep the pure faith. The faith that came from Christ to the apostles to you. Don't get, don't get sidetracked. Don't lose the core. Like, stay focused on the real things. And so Paul writes these letters to these different churches. And the letters are what become in your Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. That's a letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, Ephesus, Ephesians is a letter to the church at Ephesus. Galatians is a letter to the church at Galatia. So when you read these books, and it is my hope you will, because I'm going to tell you, the action item for today, right now, at the beginning of this, is read these four books. They're not that long, these four letters. Even if you don't do, if you're like, I'm, I refuse to do year of the Bible, I'm a loner. Okay, I get that. But like, just do this. Be a maverick and read these four books, you crazy mavericks. All right, just, just these. You can probably read these in two or three nights. They're not that long, okay? Read First and Second Corinthians, which you've already read if you're doing year of the Bible. Read Galatians and Ephesians. Because we're going to camp out in these four books over the next four weeks. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time 
studying these things, understanding these things, and I cannot wait to see what God's going to do. See, because for, for most Christians, or for not most Christians, for a lot of Christians, not at this church, but at the, at the other church down there, a lot of people want a Savior who's more like a politician, right? I mean, think about when you, when you go to the polls to vote for somebody, um, whether it's Republican or Democrat or Libertarian, when you go to the polls to vote for somebody, you typically do it based on what you think they're going to do for you, right? I mean, that, we're, we're incredibly individualistic in this country. I don't go to the polls based on what I think that the politician's going to do for somebody else. We vote based on the fact that we believe our vote for that person is going to make our lives better. Otherwise, it'd be kind of dumb to do it, wouldn't it? Y'all know the saying, make America great again? Anyone ever heard that? All right, so there was a group of people that Trump hired to help him come up with his campaign slogan. Whether you like him or don't like him, it doesn't matter. Democrats do it, Republicans do it, everybody does it. They came up with this campaign slogan, and it's make America great again. I worked in advertising for 10 years. This stuff's always fascinating to me. Let me tell you what that saying really says. It says, make your life better. Like, that's what they're telling you. When you hear make America great again, what they're playing on is that you have this utopian America where you get everything you want, and they're saying, we can give it to you. And the other side's saying, no, we can give it to you. We can give it to you, about it, we can give it, and you'll have more money and less taxes, and you'll be more protected if you vote for me. And that's the message of every politician who's ever run for office, ever, all right? This is who you wouldn't vote for. Let's say y'all are all at my, um, let's say I'm running for president, which would be awesome. Let's, let's say I'm running for president. Morning. Uh, I'm Tommy, running for president. Uh, vote for me. Odds are it may cost you most of your money. Um, you're going to lose a lot of friends. Uh, may even cost you your life. God bless America. <laughs> All right? I mean, would you vote for me? Of course not. You would, oh, I can't wait to vote for that guy. And yet, that was Jesus' campaign speech. He didn't come as a politician. So this politician Jesus that we're looking for that's going to give me health, wealth, and prosperity and make my life better and more beautiful. Now, is life better with Jesus? Absolutely. Yes, but is it easy? No. No, he didn't, he didn't come as a politician because he doesn't need your vote. He's the king with no term limits, and that has perks. So then I read Luke 14, 30. This is so good, man. This is, this is Jesus' campaign speech. All right, so when I read this this week, I pictured Jesus is at a campaign rally. He's going to ask everybody to vote for him. There's been some music, you know, Fleetwood Mac played, mm, Gypsy. And then Jesus, Jesus gets up and says this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turns to them and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying that person began to build and wasn't ready. Or suppose a king is about to go to a war against another king. 
Won't he first sit down and consider whether his 10,000 men can oppose the one coming with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while they're a long way off and ask for peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Can you imagine the crowd's response at that campaign rally? Fake news. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> You're fine. All right, think how mad they would be. And yet this is what Jesus says when he stands in front of the crowd. He wouldn't make Jerusalem great again. It was, follow me and give up everything. Follow, I want you to follow me but I want you to count the cost because I'm going to ask you to live, to give up everything for me. And in that, he says, you must hate mother and father and sister and brother. And Jesus isn't asking you to hate mother and father and sister and brother. That's not how that term is being used there. Uh, y'all ever said like, I hate chocolate. Does that mean the same? You're like, no, no, never said that. But does that mean the same thing as I hate someone who hurt my family member? You can use the word hate in a lot of different ways. This hate in this context means Christ must be elevated so far above everything that in comparison, it looks like hate. Because Christ is so far above all other things that nothing else even compares to him. So that's, he said, you must elevate me above every other thing in your life. He's saying, will you allow me to take you that far? where it's my will above all other things in your life. And if you do that, then you are my disciple. And very few people get that today because we want a Jesus that just simply gives us what we want and makes our lives better. But Paul understood it. And it's one of the reasons I love Paul so much. It's one of the reasons Paul said, you wanna do what Jesus did, do what I do, model me. That's a bold statement to make. But it's one of the reasons we can study Paul and model Paul is because Paul knew Christ. He knew the guys who knew him. And he lived an incredible life. And in 2 Corinthians 6, we see the way Paul thought life was to be lived. And we're going to start in verse 3, and it says this. This is Paul talking. He says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves, that means we offer ourselves, in every way, in great endurance and in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and riots, in hard work and sleepless night and hunger, in purity and understanding and patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love and truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness in my right hand and my left, through glory and dishonor, through bad news and good news, genuine yet regarded as fake, known yet regarded as unknown, dying but we live, beaten but not killed, sorrowful but rejoicing, poor but rich, having nothing but possessing everything. And this is Paul's mindset. He's like, I don't care. I don't care, it's all rubbish. Give me Christ, take everything. This is who I am. And he didn't hide who he was. And he said, I put no stumbling block in front of him. We think we put a stumbling block in front of somebody if we say the name Jesus too many times at the wrong place. Oh, I hope they're not offended when I talk about Jesus. Paul's like, you know, I, did, I put no stumbling block because I was Jesus everywhere I went. I was Jesus with the Romans on Friday night. That's who you want to be with on Friday night. I was Jesus with the Jews on Saturday. I was Jesus everywhere with the Assyrians. With everywhere I was Christ for them so that they might see Christ in me. In hardships and wealth and poor and whatever, I was Christ. Because Paul's allegiance was to Christ first. 
Paul said, I made myself a slave to Christ. He put on the yoke of Christ. He, he, he was a slave to Christ, a servant of Christ, and his devotion was completely clear. And it wasn't because of a sermon he preached. You saw it with the way that Paul lived. Paul says, he goes on in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and says this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what, what, can fellowship have, what can fellowship and light have in common with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? And Baal was a big idol at the time. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Paul says we should look different because we serve a different God. He uses the term there. He says do not be equally, do not be yoked with someone you're not equal with. Right? Y'all ever heard that one? First off, let me say this. Don't use that verse as an excuse to get divorced. Um, we'll talk about that in a few weeks, but if, if the Bible is what you're going to use, it's very difficult to, to do that, so be careful. But that is not about divorce. Um, Paul would say, if you're in a situation, stay in it. But we can talk about that in a few weeks. It's, it's a different thing. But Paul is saying, do not be yoked with people who, don't, who haven't given their lives to Christ. Yoked. That's a funny word. I was at the lake a few, a few months back with some guys, and Different guys, different ideas, and, and I quoted this verse for some reason, and I don't know why. I was probably trying to win an argument. That's why we typically quote verses. So I quoted that one, and my friend was like, man, that is so yoked. He's like, who said, that's so Jesus. He's like, that's such a church thing. Who else walks around saying yoked? And I was like, you know what, you're right. Nobody. Have you ever been in a normal conversation outside this building when someone said, so how's your yoke, man? Feeling, feeling yoked today? I mean... It's, it's a churchy word, right? And so I was like, well, hold on. What, what exactly is Paul talking about? Because I've said this verse. I've quoted this verse. But I don't really know that I knew what Paul was talking about. And so Paul is actually quoting Deuteronomy 22, where there's a law given that says an ox and a donkey should not be yoked together. And so a yoke is, is if you guys can imagine an ox and that leather thing around him and the harness on him, that's the yoke. And so Paul, uh, an, an animal would wear a yoke so that they could be steered or driven by their master. Paul has willfully put on a yoke to become the servant of God, the slave of Christ. And so he's saying, don't, be, don't become uh, uh, bound together with this yoke with someone who has not given their life to Christ because a donkey was a dirty animal and an and ox was a clean animal. And so Paul said, you wouldn't yoke together clean and unclean. See, Paul believed, and many of us believe, that in Christ, the dead have come back to life. So Paul is saying, don't yoke together the living and the dead. Don't yoke together the clean and the, and the unclean. Because if you think about it, if we have two different masters, we're not pulling the cart in the same direction. It's not even practical to yoke together. He says, what is the temple of God and the temple of idols? They have nothing in common. Why are you yoking together two people who serve two different masters? That doesn't make any sense at all. We are bound together in this room through worship. 
When we come in here and we sing and we pray, we are, we are bound together as one. We are yoked together when we worship God. That's why if you don't do anything, if you just come in here and stand there and don't participate, you're actually hurting all of us because we are yoked together as one body, one group. And if, if you're worshiping God and y'all are worshiping, you know, Thor or like Superman or something, we are an unequally yoked room. And so Paul is simply saying, do not be unequally yoked. You can only serve one master. Jesus said this real simply in Matthew uh, chapter 6. He, and many of you may have heard this before. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. He says, you can't serve two masters. So don't be yoked together with someone who's serving a master that you're not serving doesn't make sense. There's no progress in that. And so as I was reading these passages this week, I challenged myself, and I want to challenge you right now. Choose this day who you will serve. Who is the master you're serving? Because if I read through the pages of this book, I come to believe that there are these great expectations that are placed on those people who claim to be followers of Christ. Like, much will be given to us. More than we can ever imagine will be given, but I believe also more than we can ever imagine is expected. And so, so if we are, if Christ is our king, if God is our master, if we're, if we're yoked to him, if we have willfully made ourselves slaves to him, then we should look different than the world around us. If we look exactly like someone who doesn't believe in Christ, who doesn't profess to believe, then something is wrong. Because if two people are bound to two different masters, they should clearly look different, right? And so, who are you serving? Does, does your life look different than those around you? Because it should. I've read the Bible a lot in the last year, more than I've ever read it in my entire life. And I have come to this conclusion, and, and I think Paul would agree, and, and I believe God would agree, that if my life looks, if, if I look like the world around me who doesn't believe in Christ, and I talk like the world around me who doesn't believe in Christ, and I live like the world around me, and I think like the world around me, then the problem is probably that I am yoked together with the world around me, because we're worshiping the same gods, little g. I've taken on the same gods that the world has taken on. And, and if, if that's you, I mean, ask yourself, really, like, ask yourself honest questions over the next few weeks. Where is your devotion really? Because that's, that's your God, Whoever, whatever, has exalted itself above the place of God in your life, whatever you think about the most, look at your priority tree and get honest. Whatever you think about the most, that's your God. Look at your checkbook and get honest. Where are you spending your money the most? Because that is your God. When you're alone, what are you doing? That's your God. Whatever has replaced the God in your life on your priority tree. When he said in Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me, I think he really meant it. 
But when we look at our list, and, and if I look at my list and I see seven other things on the priority tree before God, then I have seven little g gods before the one big g God. And so who, who are you serving? Who's your God? The Bible says, do not be yoked together with the world, but we have taken on the world's yoke because we're serving the world's gods. And I believe there's four of them. I believe there's four idols that at some point we will all have to deal with in our lives. And, and, and I'm willing to bet most of us have already dealt with one of these or all four of them at some point. But I believe there's four idols that we're going to see that are constantly fighting for our devotion and attention from God. And these aren't bad things. As a matter of fact, they're all good things. None of the four idols are bad things. But, a, but a, bad thing, a good thing becomes a deadly thing when it's exalted above God in your life. And so we have these four things where we seem to share the same worldview as the broken, decaying world around us. And if that's the case, we are yoked together through the worship of the same gods. And here's the four things, okay? And these are the four things we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. And the four idols that I believe are causing the most problem for us are money, sex, family, and self. Four idols that I believe at some point in time will all be a problem for us. And so over the next four weeks, we are going to expose these idols. We are going to name these idols. We are going to confess and repent where we need to. And we're going to deal with the fact that our priorities and our understandings have become so intertwined with the world that we now worship the same gods they worship. So next week, we're going to talk about money. And, and listen, like, we're not going to pass pledge cards at the end of the message, Okay. We're going to talk about money, not for the purpose of bringing in more money. I get paid the exact same no matter how much you give. Thank God. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? But like, it's not for the purpose of bringing in more money. The purpose is so that we might be free from money. And if next week I talk about money and you're offended, I want to challenge you that maybe you're offended because I just picked a fight with your God. And then the next week, we're going to talk about sex. And some people are going to be offended. And, and we're going to offend the red states and we're going to offend the blue states because it's not going to be our opinion. It's going to be the living, breathing word of God into this subject. And if you're offended, maybe I picked a fight with your God. And then we're going to talk about family. And we're going to talk about the little six-pound, eight-ounce gods that we have. They own us. And if I talk about family in a way that offends you and we realign priorities in a way that offends you and we talk about that I can't tell my kid that God is first if in fact baseball is first and soccer is first and hunting is first and every single thing comes before church, if that offends you, then the truth is I picked a fight with your God. And then we're going to deal with the most deadly of all of them. Y'all know what this one is? Self. Self, my self-preservation, and then I've got to take care of myself. And, and, if, and if we offend someone as we talk about this, the truth is we just picked a fight with your God. And so be prepared and be open and be honest and begin to pray right now before what God is going to do. Because as we open this book 
and we say, God, I'm laying down my feelings and I'm laying down my emotions and I'm not really sure about this, but I just want to read your word and I just want to hear from you. God, just be you. As we do that, things will stir in our hearts and we will be challenged and we should be challenged. But at the end of it, for those who are willing to take up their cross and follow him above everything, you will be free. You'll be free. And no idol, nothing will ever hold you. And so if we have to get a little offended to get to that point, then to God be the glory, offend me. Let me be offended. I'm, I'm challenging you right now to prepare your hearts for where we're about to go. Because these are not going to be easy conversations. And if you're wondering, should I have my, my young kid in here for sex weeks? Absolutely. Let him hear it from me first. I mean, if you've got a sixth grader and you're, you know, you're wondering, oh, should they be here that week? Yeah, they're hearing it somewhere. I learned from a friend of mine's stepdad's porn section when I was in fourth grade. There's got to be a better way. Let's hear about it here together. And let's, let's, let's let lay down this thing that we're, I'm easily offended by everything and they're just after. I'm not after anything, honestly. You know what I'm after over four weeks? My freedom. I'm after my freedom. I got, I'm, 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 I've got a motive here. My motive is to be closer to Jesus Christ and more free from the idols that I think bind us all. Will you come with me? Will you read the books? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. That's it, man. And then we come in here. We open up the word of God. And we allow him to take his proper place as first in our lives. We bind together with a collective view of truth that's bigger than our feelings and our emotions and our thoughts and our political persuasions. And we just let God be God. God said, you should have no other gods before me. We're about to put four of them in their place. Amen.